0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is co-founder of Olympus Projects, Zubin Gadhoek. First of all, there's a lot of industry folk that are kind of upset with YouTube over copyright mistakes. And many think that their version of how they treat copyright is really a mess. Now what brings that on are claims against licensed content and maybe you have experienced this yourself where essentially what it is is you post your own song and someone makes a copyright claim against it and then you have to go and fight it. Now I'm not saying that you can't win but it just takes a long time and that's part of the problem. There's a number of reasons why this happens apparently and the head of YouTube creative who's in charge of this, actually came out and talked about it a lot over the last week. Now, most of this has to do with copyright complaints, more against hate speech and things like that, but it does apply to music as well. For instance, one of the big problems that YouTube creators have, and this isn't necessarily people that are listening here that are musicians, but maybe it's obtaining copyright permission in the first place. So, in other words, if you wanted to put a song behind your video most people don't understand that there's two copyrights there you have to go to the publisher and the record label most people go to the record label to get permission and forget to go to the publisher and next thing you know there's a copyright claim against them now if you're posting something like a game video for instance now there's a third copyright you have to go to the game company the game developer and get permission there as well So a lot of this starts with creators not being aware of what copyright is in the first place or of what permissions they require in order to post something. Now, another problem that YouTube creators have is sometimes you'll put just a slice of some sort of third-party content in your video, but YouTube is really good at figuring that out. So you'll have a two-second splice of something in there and it's not necessarily music, it could be video, all of a sudden there's a copyright claim. Many times this comes from YouTube itself. YouTube will figure this out with this content ID and then they'll claim the revenue because what'll happen is there's one of two things, really. If there's a copyright claim against you, and basically say, look, either take the video down or let me, the copyright holder, monetize this video. So you can understand that for the copyright holder But now YouTube jumps in and says, well, we're doing this for the copyright holder. We'll collect the money in the meantime. (laughs) So it's bad enough that it's hard to do this in the first place and hard to get enough views to actually make some money. But then you have all of these other things actually happening at the same time. Another thing that happens is YouTube sometimes falsely identifies a clip. And it may be totally legitimate. You may be the copyright owner, holder. And in fact, YouTube content ID will misidentify it as something else. So once again, you can actually get around this and you can file a claim. But here's where it breaks down. There's a decided lack of human intervention on the other side. YouTube relies on tech to handle these complaints. So it will take a long time before you actually get in the queue for this to happen. And there's nobody that you can call. Now that being said... The head of YouTube says they just hired 10,000 people in order to take care of all this. So hopefully that will take care of the problem. Now, that being said, they've also taken down 8.3 million videos during the first three months. Again, a lot of this has to do with hate speech and good for them for taking it down. But if you happen to have a video that's controversial in some way, you may be included in that. So again, there's a way around it. You can make a claim yourself, but the problem is it might take some time to resolve itself. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to HitmakersClub.com to learn more. Now, here's something that's scary. I often caution people against having their entire internet presence based around a social network and the reason why is social networks change and they change all the time they change look they change feel they change their usage terms what could seem like a perfectly good proposition one moment six months later may change completely and it may not be in your favor and it could get even worse and here's a big example Now, no one talks about MySpace these days, but it's still around, and it's still actually fairly big. But MySpace just accidentally lost 50 million songs by 14 million artists during a server migration. Now, accidentally is the key word here, because there are many that think that this was kind of like accidentally on purpose. The reason why is... It's just a whole lot less work to have to migrate all of these songs, and it's easier to just suddenly lose them. So it turns out that all of these songs are from between 2005 and 2009, and that's when MySpace was at its peak. And at that time, people forget, 10 years ago, it was the biggest social site in the world. 10 years ago, and we forget about it now, it's not even in the conversation. But nonetheless, this was the largest archive of music from that era. And a lot of that stuff can't be found elsewhere. And now it's gone. So it just goes to show, if you rely too much on a social network, bad things can happen. This isn't the first time this has happened with MySpace. As you might recall, oh, three years or so ago, Justin Timberlake And a group of investors tried to save MySpace, they did actually, and pumped a bunch of money in. And that was all well and good until MySpace did an update in order to get more relevant. And when that happened, if you went to bed on Sunday night and you had 10,000 followers, on Monday morning you woke up with zero followers. And this was for everybody. They zeroed them out, even Justin Timberlake. So it just goes to show you that if you rely too much on a social network, it can come back and bite you hard. The only place online that you can totally and fully control is by owning your own website. And I know it's a pain for many people, but it's easier than ever to actually do that. I highly encourage you because you just never know what a social network is going to do. My guest today is Zubin Gadhok, who's a co-founder and producer for Olympics Projects, which is a management and consulting agency that provides artists with help in the day-to-day operations and development of their businesses. In the interview, we talked about artist branding, building social authority, creating a new industry sound, the power of SoundCloud, and much, much more. I spoke with Zubin via Skype from his office in New York. Tell me about Olympus Projects. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, so um, Olympus Projects uh, is a management agency that me and my business partner, Peter Robinson, founded in June of 2017. And really, we saw an opportunity in the music industry for us to, well, we saw an opportunity to empower artists given all the shifts and changes occurring in the music industry. It's really the digital revolution, and it's changing the way that artists operate the way that they build their platforms, the way that they connect with their fans. And so we saw an opportunity for us to take a lot of the artists in our network and um, start helping them build brands, um, really teaching them you know, the new ways to essentially work in the music industry and build in the industry. So we launched in June of 2017, and since then we've been consulting with artists. We've managed a couple of artists and brought in millions of streams for the artists that we've worked with.
0: So what do you see that artists don't know? Because you say the, that you're educating them in the new way of doing business, so I'm just curious, what is that exactly?
1: Yeah, so I think um, comparing the industry now to the past, in the past it was really expensive to be a music artist. It was really expensive to, one, make the art, and to build the connections and have the influence behind you to distribute your music and build a fan base and all of that's changing with social media with the digital revolution. So previously when artists recorded music, um, they had to do an expensive bit to go to a the studio, they had the right people in the room, and then they had to worry about actually physically printing and distributing that music and the physical marketing behind it. And now artists can do all of that on their own with their phone with the, you know, the, the digital um you know capabilities I have to share their music online to record at cheaper costs. Um, and so that's essentially what we set out to do is teach artists how to build the teams around them to do what before they needed to wait on music labels. So, so creating own opportunities now.
0: So the artists in my generation, yeah, I understand that because they, they don't realize the difference between the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things. But your generation i would think that they would know all that stuff already because they grew up with it
1: yeah i think really the key is teaching artists um how to use the digital tools to one like essentially be entrepreneurs and be ceos so half of the business is about making the music and that's you know that's one side of things but the other half is learning how to build a team around you, learning how to lead that team and motivate that team, and also how to build um, and capture and share strategic, strategic content around what you are doing. And a lot of those business principles um, about how to build a team, how to build an online business, how to use your brand um, as a differentiating factor in your music... Those are a lot of the principles that we set out to teach artists um, through like our consulting courses, even before we get to the point in management.
0: There are multiple ways to do that. What's your approach to it?
1: Yeah, so the first, one of the things that um, I say to artists often is, you know, making good music isn't enough anymore because... You know, music, the cost of music has gone uh, to produce music and record music, make music has gone down. So there's a lot more people making music and good music. So what's going to make your product stand out is your brand. That's how you're going to differentiate yourself. So who are the people that you're trying to impact with your music? Um, What are the messages that you're trying to share? What are the channels that you're going to share those messages through? Um, And I think all of those things um, are key components of an artist's brand that is going to essentially help them build a following and a fan base.
0: Okay. That being said, so much of this is built around social authority. How do you build that up?
1: Yeah, I think that really is, um, you know, how authentic are you as an artist, um, you know? And a lot of that is communicated through strategic content. So not only being able to share music, but being able to share the process that you go through in creating music and the story behind that music and that's that's a large part of what social media um, is used for to empower artists is showing the behind the scenes um, process of making a song or giving that extra level of depth and telling the story behind a song or behind a project um, and if you can do that effectively and come off as authentic it's going to make your music that much more impactful to the people that you're trying to reach.
0: Now I understand that completely and if you're an artist that already has a fan base and some buzz, that's pretty easy because you have people that actually want to see that. But if you're a new artist that doesn't have any of that, why should I care?
1: Yeah. Um, I think a lot of, uh, you know, still staying on the social media topic, a lot of artists get like cosigns from other artists because of social media. They, so there might be an artist that a group of, fans or a group of people respect or listen to or are influenced by and that artist and on the music industry side of things might come across another artist, collaborate with another artist, share that artist's music and they that, that plays an essential role in building artists today is who is co-signing you online, who's publicly acknowledging you and your music and um, going to help essentially share their influence and their fan base with you when
0: you're coming up. Of course, easier said than done finding that co-sign
1: yeah exactly exactly and that's that's really where the hard work comes in where you still have to be making good music um there still has to be that you know uniqueness in your sound in your brand and your messaging um, and in the way that you just connect with people in general and if people can catch that vibe and that energy from the art that you're making that's how you're going to get those cosigns
0: but you know what's interesting You say uh, about making good music, and I agree with you, but the fact of the matter is, that's different for everybody, what they consider good and bad, and what works for them and what doesn't. So, in fact, what really works for me might not work for you and vice versa. Yeah. It's difficult to find the people that really relate to what you're doing. I'm sure that there's plenty of artists that that are huge that you just can't get your arms around. You can't see what's going on, right? Yeah. So again, we go to the point where those people that will probably like your music are out there. You just got to find them. That's the hard part.
1: Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, tying it back to the brand. That's why we place a lot of emphasis on the brand. What is your, like, music is just one facet of a brand these days. There's so many different ways that you build a brand and that you connect with the followers or the supporters of that brand. And really, it's all about like What's the larger purpose? What's the larger vision? What change are you trying to impact? What story are you trying to tell? Um, who, who are you trying to impact? Where and how? And so when you think about all of these like, larger topics, music is just one facet of either communicating that or connecting with the fan base or the audience that you're, uh, you know, that you're trying to connect with and that you're trying to build.
0: So you're a management company as well. Everybody and their brother wants management, and everybody sees management as, I think most musicians see it, and rightfully so, they see it as a stepping stone to something larger, but the fact of the matter is, you can't manage everybody, and you don't want to manage everybody, so how does that work for you guys?
1: Yeah, so that's exactly why we call ourselves a management and consulting agency because we'll never meet an artist overnight and say, Hey, like let's jump into a management type of relationship. That just doesn't make sense. Before you could jump into a relationship like that, you have to you have to really trust the person that you're working with and you have to know that, you know, you guys are on the same page and want the same things for each other and have that type of relationship um, and trust and honesty. And so And you have to believe in each other to that level also. So before we jump into any type of management relationship like that with artists, we first start out um, consulting with them. So we'll take a look at where their music is at and where their brand is at. And we'll start, um, we have this consulting program called Olympus Silver, which is kind of like our um, program that we use when we're introducing ourselves to artists. And it really communicates like our mindset and our values. So we'll run them through the program and we'll teach them along the way about what is a you know a digital sales funnel or a fan funnel um, what is a brand how do you use your brand to differentiate your music how do you um you know what are all the different components of a brand so things like a, a vision and mission statement things like a target audience um, what are the strategic con- um, contexts that you use to connect with your audience All of these things are things that we go through in Olympus Silver. And then after that, if we've kind of gotten on the same page with the artist and we feel like there's someone that we could build like a long-term working relationship with, then we might talk about helping them um, manage like a certain project that they have upcoming um, or certain things like that. And that could you know unfold into a
0: larger management relationship in the long term. So what you're talking about is fairly sophisticated. How do you learn that?
1: Yeah, a lot of it was just like, throwing ourselves out there and being able to provide value. Like that was really the key when we started Olympus is how can we provide value to the artists around us or the artists that we want to work with. And so we started with a small group of artists, just helping provide value, helping teach them about navigating the digital landscape, building online businesses, building a brand um, and, you know, releasing projects in like creative and strategic ways. And, you know, over the course of that, we started to see an influx on the you know, the artists in our network um, and the people, the artists around our network saying, hey, can you guys help us with this? Can you manage me? Can you do this? And so that's kind of what led to developing the Olympus Silver program was, you know, we, you're right, we can't manage everyone. We don't want to manage everyone, but we want to at least be able to provide, you know, most of the artists that come to us with some level of value and kind of use that as a scouting metric um, or a scouting um, you know, way for us to find new talent to manage and work with in the long term.
0: How many artists do you manage?
1: Um, so right now there's three artists that we're managing full time. Um, Ant Beal, who's a hip hop artist from South Jersey. He's incredibly talented. He's got multi-million streams. Ben Beal, who is actually a student at the University of Maryland. Um, we've been working with him for a couple of months now. He makes like lo-fi hip hop music. Um, and he's really incredible at it and then Kincaid, who is a artist who's originally from boston now out um, located in los angeles um he's been he's been there for a couple of years now just making music and so we're working with those three really closely and we're consulting with more and more artists every day as well
0: is there a genre that you specialize in
1: no i mean my personal preference when it comes to like producing music because i'm also a music producer Um, is like hip-hop and pop music. Those are the two genres that I'm really, really into. But when it comes to managing artists, um, we're not very particular about it because a lot of the tactics are the same across genres. And we really want to, we don't want to lock ourselves in too small of a box. It's really for us about being able to, to build brands. That's really what our goal is, is building brands. And it doesn't matter what genre it is. There's still a brand that could be built.
0: I see where, besides yourself, there's a couple other producers That are in-house. So are you doing that for the artists that you work with? Are you producing with them or is this for just other projects or is that part of what you you offer or how does that work?
1: So the producer team that we have is a very new, um, I guess, concept that we started working on. And the larger vision is to, yeah, the larger vision of the producer team is to create a new industry sound. Um, I want to put together the production talent that we can So that way we can pair that with our, you know, our management, artist development side of Olympus and actually be producing, you know, the top sound of the industry. And that's a really long-term goal. And right now what we're working on is being able to achieve what we need to to start building a brand off of this team. So right now what we're doing is just producing music every day, working with artists every day in the studio, sending out beats, trying to get as many placements as we can so we can build a platform to actually build a successful brand off of and so the vision with that is, the long-term vision with that is to be able to really produce a, a new industry sound and um, kind of going off that, there's, there's a concept that I break down for a lot of producers, developing producers when I talk to them. And what I break down is essentially this, the term producer or production is a really vague term um, that could refer to a lot of different things. And in my mind, the way I see it is there's three different types of producers and they all have different specialties and different types of roles. And so the first one is essentially like instrumentalists, people that specialize at playing an instrument. So it might be a pianist, a guitarist, a drummer, um, any of those things. And their primary job is, uh, in, in a production um, conversation, in a production viewpoint, their primary job is to make, the samples that are going to be used in recording a song or making a beat. Um, So they record the samples and they give it to people like what the second type of producer is, a beat maker. And so a beat maker is someone's job who's literally what it sounds like, just to churn out beats. And so a beat maker's job is not necessarily to be in the studio with the artist. Their job isn't necessarily to see a song through from start to finish. Their job is to make the beat. And it's a baseline platform platform or, or musical composition that artists, that vocalist can use to, to make a song. So like a, like a sketch. And then the last and you know the most sophisticated is a record producer. And that's someone who kind of is the first one to touch a piece of music and the last one to touch it. And they're really the creative director, the vision, you know, they vision everything from start to finish, of course, with the people that they work with. But that's really the job of a record producer. It's not just being a beat maker. It's not just being an instrumentalist. Maybe you're neither of those things, but maybe you have the vision for the song or the musical piece of work. So the vision with the team, with the producer team, is to be able to have all of those components on the team. So that way um, we have record producers on the team that are using our beat makers, that are using our instrumentalists, and that are in the studio from you know start to finish for these records um, with the artists that we're developing.
0: You haven't met the fourth kind of producer yet, I take it.
1: <laughs> okay, go ahead.
0: It's a person with a lot of money that finances a project that wants a producer title.
1: Okay, fair enough. I would refer to those people as boutique labels. But yeah, I mean, it's debatable. But I, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of people out there like that that want the term producer but aren't actually involved too much with the music besides the finances.
0: It, it's funny because there's been a lot of successful producers, and we're talking more in the past here, but I think it doesn't matter what era where they have no musical ability, they can't really guide someone in what to do, but they're really good at assembling people and they kind of know what works, you know, just inherently. And it's surprising that there are some people that have had huge hits that are like that, that are good at getting people that are good at what they do. One of those three categories you're saying.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely I definitely agree with that. And maybe I would categorize that type of person as someone Falling in the record producer category that I described earlier, because I don't think a record producer necessarily needs to be a beat maker, or necessarily ever had to be a beat maker um, or instrumentalist. You could be a record producer and not make the beats and not play the instruments. But if you're able to get an idea started in the studio with an artist, and you're able to see that through front to finish, you know, I think I think that's what we're talking about here. And it's not necessarily being able to do everything, but it's being able to understand everything and envision. Envision what you're going to take a raw idea or a blank canvas to an end product.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Of course, the era when I came up was different than yours. There's no such thing as a beat maker. I mean, the beat maker was a drummer <laughs> that you hired in, you know, that's, that's the way that worked. So everything was with live players all the time. What ended up happening there that's maybe not part of, of your world so much is the politics involved with dealing with live players and a lot of them at once because you have to try to keep everybody happy and at the same time make the session move along you don't deal with as many people at once so that's not as much of a job as it used to be i don't think
1: yeah no i, I would agree with that for sure um uh, you know i would say like in the last couple of years like everything in the industry is really changing including the way that music is produced including the way that it's recorded and the way that it's distributed for sure
0: Mm-hmm. Well, recording, you know, it's something I look at closely. And for sure, one of the things that's happened is it used to be really critical to make everything sound good. And if it didn't, it wouldn't make it past the gatekeepers because they they generally say, oh, well, it doesn't sound like a record. It doesn't sound, you know, whatever. Now it doesn't matter. It's more the feel. You capture the feel. It doesn't matter how you capture it. I think that's healthy, actually.
1: I, I, would, I would agree with that. And, and kind of going back to you know, the social media conversation we were having earlier, I think that's really one of the benefits of social media and the digital platform for developing artists today is there are really no gatekeepers anymore. Of course, if you have someone with money behind you or a label, like, you know, you'll be able to reach reach a wider audience faster, but you're your own gatekeeper. And, and that's why it's so powerful. And I think, that's a lot of where SoundCloud comes into play. A lot of people say SoundCloud is a dying platform. And I tell artists the opposite. I think SoundCloud is a really powerful platform and a powerful tool because it's where artists have the most flexibility in terms of major streaming platforms. You can put a song up and pull a song down with the click of a button. You can't necessarily do that on major streaming platforms like Apple Music or Spotify. But with SoundCloud, there's not an expectation of having a perfect audio file put out there when you upload it and there's not an expectation of having a major rollout. It's a place where artists can say, hey, if you're a fan of mine, follow my SoundCloud page. This is where I'm dropping sketches. I might only upload them for 24 hours, but this is where I'm going to test ideas against against my top fans. So maybe I was in the studio last night and I recorded something really unique and cool and different and maybe kind of weird. And I'm not sure if I really want to put it out, but I want to test the waters. So an artist can ask their top fans, hey, Go listen to it on my SoundCloud page. It's up for the next twenty-four hours. Give me your feedback, and that's um, you know where where digital technology and especially where SoundCloud comes into play is giving artists that flexibility. At the it empowers them. Uh, it's it's something that artists could never do ten years ago.
0: Okay, as a producer, how long does it take you to typically finish a song, start to finish?
1: Um, it really just depends on the song and the artist that I'm working with. Um, so I like there will be times that I'll make a beat in 20 minutes, and there will be times that I'll make a beat in literally 10 hours. It just kind of depends on how complex I want the track to be, um, what samples I might be working with, and what the intentions of the artist
0: are. Now, see, that's really fast because I'm from the era that— and I'm not saying it's right at all because it, it essentially is self-defeating in many ways— that you would work a track to death to make it as perfect as possible. And I'm not saying that's good. It's just the way it was for a long, long time. And now everything is fast. And it's funny because it's back to the way it was in the beginning. In the early days, you'd go in and, you know, two takes in the studio and that would be it. And then it kind of went to let's get it as perfect as possible. And now we're back to let's crank it out, whatever is in the moment. And I much prefer that because, boy, there's nothing worse than working on a track for hours and days and months and uh, stop already.
1: Yeah, I think part of the beauty of music today is, or just always really is, it's imperfections. And so when I'm working on a track, my goal isn't necessarily to make it sound 100% clean and perfect. I think if it sounds a little imperfect, it has a little bit more character and Mm -hmm. texture. And that's a good thing. Um, so a lot of times like I'll work a track until I personally feel like there's nothing bothering my ear. That's how, that's how I would phrase it. If there's nothing bothering my ear, I would, I would give it the check mark and say, okay, it's good to go. Um, there might be other producers or audio engineers that don't feel that same way, but I, I like the imperfection of, of music. I think that's what makes it really unique. And there's so much music put out today. So many artists putting out music every second of every day. I think the imperfections make it sound a little bit unique and a little bit different. You get more personality from the artist and the and the producer and the engineer like
0: that. Now, on the other hand, there's less possibility for that because so much is around beats that are on the grid that are quantized. So there's less opportunity for that.
1: Yeah, well that's really where it comes into, you know, having access to, you know, producers that are are different are unique aren't so on the grid and that's like a lot of what I look for when I look for producers is who's making beats that I think sound different and that's kind of a subjective process I would say because I'm the one choosing or my team's the one choosing but that's exactly what I look for is whose beats sound different whose beats do I feel like um, can be used to develop artists because they're already developing their own sound I think a lot of you know, what a breakthrough artist needs, not even today, but always, is bringing a new sound to the table. How do you sound different than the people that came before you? Even if you're influenced by them heavily, how do you how do you take their sound to another direction? And a lot of that starts with the production. Um, and that's a lot of the reason why I wanna build this producer team is being able to have a strong, powerful team of producers that can work together to build a unique sound for the artists that we're developing.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's always been the case in the music business. Something that's unique is what breaks through and becomes the next trend, But until it does that, it's kind of looked down upon by the industry, yeah, and it's really hard to break through as a matter of fact. so it it winds up being the artists that have the most most fortitude in keeping going with it and and just saying and not giving in to whatever the popular sound of the day is, which is really easy to do, I think and and that's the fault that most artists have i think they just try to sound like whatever's hot now
1: yeah i mean i think there's a lot of recent examples and especially in the in the hip-hop industry that i'm familiar with of artists that have kind of broken that expectation of having music that sounds perfect or close to it or music that sounds like anything that came before them and it's starting to be like a more and more acceptable you know occurrence i would say is Being being left field, having music that sounds way out there, imperfect. Um, Like if you're familiar with XXX Tentacion and and his um, record, Look at Me, like that that track is so imperfect in the way that it sounds, and that's also like the reason that it became you know hit hit the level of success that it did today.
0: You know, you mentioned before about gatekeepers, but there really are gatekeepers when it comes to playlist curators. So how do you approach that?
1: Yeah, uh, no, I agree with you on that. Um, I think, well, yeah, you're right. Playlist curators are gatekeepers. The way I look at it is it's almost like the modern version of radio. So a lot of the times when we're working with artists who have legitimate budgets to put behind their projects, we'll recommend or even if we're helping them manage the project, we'll help them put money behind Spotify playlist, you know, placements and stuff like that because that's where a lot of people are discovering music today and you're right they are they are what i would call the gatekeepers today if there you know if there is a gatekeeper in the music industry today because they're so influential and spotify algorithms can really play a pivotal role in taking an artist from nothing to something
0: you mentioned about playlist promotion you found that that's worthwhile then
1: Yes, if you're doing it with the right people, this is something that me and my team are still are still discovering and learning more and more about every day. But there's some people that will claim to put you on playlists and you're going to get a certain amount of plays and a certain amount of exposure. And that's not always true. A lot of times it's fake. A lot of times those people falsify the plays with bot activity. And it's hard to tell up front who's real and who's not. That's something that we're still learning more about and, and fine-tuning and making sure that the artists that we do manage projects and get them on playlists, that we're getting them real plays and real exposure on legitimate playlists and not playlists that are completely built off of bot activity. You
0: know, it's so funny because everything's the same as it was in the, the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. Only we we're talking about regio then and, and it was, you know, similar promotion where you had to pay... a. Big dollar if you wanted to get in the right places, but you could never tell for sure you were spending the money on the right company that's going to do it, because everybody had a really good spiel on what's going to work, yeah. you know, and how, how they do it. It's funny, because it, some things just never change, and that's one of them, apparently. It's it's the same, only a different platform.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with that, but I, I also think that there's still more opportunity, because... It doesn't always need to be that way, where um, you know, paying for playlist placements is part of your um, essentially your promotion for projects. Because there's also Spotify like organically um, curated playlists from their algorithms, and really the goal right now is to get enough traction and buzz behind your music that Spotify starts picking it up organically. And once you kind of hit that point and you you keep the ball rolling. You know, now the game completely changes. Now your promotional efforts can completely change because Spotify is organically picking up your music. The The challenging part, the most competitive part, is getting to that point where Spotify's algorithms recognize you as developing artists um, with, you know, increasing statistics every release and stuff like that. So that's really where a lot of the strategy comes in is how do you make your music, you know, rise above all the noise when you're at that Ground level phase of just building a platform.
0: Do you find that that occurs with multiple releases, or is that something that can just happen from one release that happens to, to catch on?
1: Um, it depends, and a lot of it is tied in with social media activity. Um, because, so if you're an artist with not great social media numbers, not great social media following, um, essentially don't have anything that's really buzzing around on the internet, then it's better to release as many times as you can on spotify um and pair that with playlist um pitching and playlist promotion because the more release points you have the more points you have to essentially promote something get your music in people's ears um versus like if you have something that goes viral on social media or starts buzzing around then a a number of some percent of those people are going to go check out your music on spotify if you're playing your cards right and so that can help in getting one piece of music a larger amount of buzz on Spotify or, or other streaming services.
0: Is Instagram the, the biggest social media platform worth using, I guess?
1: Uh, I would say, well, at this exact point in time, yeah. For the last couple of years, yeah. Um, I think it possibly could change because there's a lot of fake activity going around on Instagram the same way there is with Spotify playlists. Um, and I know Instagram is has been teasing a lot of different tactics that they're testing out. To combat that and I hope that they implement a lot of them because I think a lot of the fake activity on Instagram is starting to get in the way of a lot of artists and it wasn't meant to be like that. Um, so depending on if Instagram can fix a lot of those problems then I think that they'll stay to stop the top social media platform um, but if not I think there's room for someone else to come and kind of take that position.
0: I think they're probably going to do something. I saw yesterday where Facebook announced that it was changing their policy on videos and how the algorithm actually worked with videos. So at one point in time, if you were to upload somebody else's video, you could get a lot of traction. And now they're really trying to eliminate that. And they're looking more at uh, loyalty and longevity, watch time, things like that, originality. So I think if they can pull that off on that platform, then it's just an easy step to go to Instagram and do that as well.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the problem with Instagram right now is um, people judging the success of a certain person's brand on Instagram based on the number of likes and the number of followers. And it's inherent why people would use those numbers or those metrics to judge the success of a brand. But the problem is that for for a couple hundred dollars um, you know, plus, you can go and you can buy an Instagram account with 100,000 followers and just brand it as your own page. And now you look like an overnight success but really it's all fake. Really all of those followers on your page are bots or people that followed it because they thought it was something else and now you just transformed it. And so a lot of people are posing for lack of a better term and what you know, what looks like success isn't really real success.
0: We can go back 10 years though to uh, MySpace and it was the same thing. Yeah. And At one point in time, record labels look for big followings like that. They they look for likes and they look for views and things. And then after it was pretty much exposed that, you know, you can game all that stuff, then it was like, well, that doesn't work anymore. So let's look for whatever we can determine as genuine engagement. And that would be across multiple platforms because it, usually when someone actually does that, they try to game something, they can't game multiple platforms, they'll just do one. So you can tell there's one platform that's really spiked and, and then everything else is kind of normal. So that's a giveaway.
1: I think a lot of industry um, people either know or are, or are learning these different tactics to kind of spot out who's real and who's posing. Um, but I think a lot of like just everyday listeners A lot of consumers don't necessarily know how to, um, I guess identify that. And so it kind of leads to confusion in the marketplace.
0: Yeah. I think you're not going to get away from that because there's always somebody that's smart that's going to figure out how to game things. And one thing I do know the record labels and we're talking about mostly the majors The majors are smart. There's a lot of smart people in there now. At one point in time, you couldn't say that, but now they're smart and they get it right away. When we think of label people, we usually think of someone kind of behind the times and not really on the ground, but they are. There's more than you think. That's one of the things I I think people don't appreciate record labels enough, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm against what they do for the most part and how they do it, but one of the things that when they do something, they usually do it fairly well, at least on some level. If you're coming in on the bottom rung of things, then maybe not so much. But if you're kind of a priority for them, they can work pretty well.
1: Yeah, I I think I would agree with that. I think that labels, um, like you said, like they're not oblivious. They're starting to catch on. I think the reason that um, maybe like newer age labels or boutique labels were able to step a little bit ahead of the curve um, at one point in time is because like major labels were and still are a little hesitant to be the first ones to adapt because. They don't necessarily need to be the first ones. They've already had success from, you know, a previous point in time. And so they can let the newcomers kind of test out the waters before they are able to say what works and what doesn't work. But I think we're at the point in time now where major labels understand, um, like, the whole evolving digital landscape and they're able to to do, you know, successfully now what they were doing 10 years ago with their old tactics.
0: Now, you say that, but I have a good friend that was head of new technologies for universal music. And my conversations with them are pretty amazing from the standpoint that I'll mention something that seems to be new to me and I'll go, oh yeah, we saw that four years ago. Because they get approached with new ideas and new technologies all the time. They implement some of them on a level that most people aren't aware of. But they are in the game, and if they're not, it's because they've researched it pretty well. So, again, you can't kind of look at what you see on the surface, because a lot of times there's stuff going on underneath that we're just not aware of. And I wouldn't be aware of either. My friend is no longer there, which is why I can talk about it. But while he was there, he you know he couldn't tell me any of those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and I think it's, it's hard for... A lot of people on the outside to understand to what extent our labels really trying out some of these new tactics because like you said a lot of it um, you know might be done at a micro level where it's not necessarily blatantly obvious to people outside of the label um, but regardless the label is doing it and trying it out and testing the waters and you know that's that's a good point that you bring up and something that is is hard to gauge for people like us but um, I agree with you.
0: Okay last question Subin. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you?
1: There's a lot of different answers I could give to that, but I think honesty, really. I think being able to be honest with your clients, with your business partners is really key and goes a long way in building successful long-term relationships. Um, there's been you know, a number of stories I've heard or things that I've personally experienced in the industry where People weren't honest or you know, people were putting themselves above others and you know, kind of being sly in one way or another. And it affects the business, it affects the opportunities that you have to work with people, it affects your clients, it affects your partners. And I think as long as you can be honest with the people that you're working with, you'll be able to build successful long-term relationships with all of them.
0: You can find out more about Zumen and Olympus Projects at OlympusProjects.io. Olympus Projects, all one word. Thanks for listening and being in my Inner Circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOwnerCircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, MixCloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.